I, I couldn't imagine keeping one if it meant I couldn't save another. listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 75 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while or know me in my real life, you probably know that I'm a huge advocate for rescue and shelter adoptions. All of my dogs have either come directly from the animal shelter or been like an informal rescue type situation or some combination of those things. And I know that here in Baltimore, this has been a really rough year, a really rough summer for all of my friends who are in the shelter and rescue world. And I'm sure it's not just Baltimore that's going through that right now from what I'm seeing on social media. And if you're somebody else whose heart is really with the shelter and rescue world, I think you're really going to love today's guest, Kara Sue Achterberg. She's one of the most knowledgeable people about the shelter and rescue world that I've ever met. We recorded this interview in June, and at that time, she said that she had visited 120 shelters in 12 states, and I'm sure that that number has only increased since then. And so if you're someone who's ever wondered, where are all these dogs coming from? Then you definitely don't want to miss my conversation with Kara. I know February was Pet Dental Health Month, but we really need to think about our dog's dental health all year round. I recently learned that 80% of our dogs over three years old have active dental or periodontal disease. And dental disease is actually a sign of other inflammation in the body and can be connected to everything from cardiovascular problems, kidney problems, diabetes, certain types of cancers, joint disease. Your dog's dental health actually can affect everything in their body. And you know that I am obsessed with finding the best and healthiest products for our dogs. So I was so excited to find out about teeth. That's right, teeth. Just a tiny spoonful of teeth powder in your dog's water bowl will make a huge improvement in your dog's dental health. It's the only thing that ever made my vet stop and go, hey, what did you do with Penny's teeth? They actually look so much better. So forget trying to figure out how to get your dog's teeth brushed without them biting you. Forget those sticks or green shoes. What you need is teeth powder, just a tiny amount in your dog's water bowl. And listeners of this podcast can save 20% on your teeth order with the code ADM. And you'll be on your way to a healthier smile for your dog without any anesthesia needed. Check out the link in the show notes to find out more about teeth and save 20% on your orders. So Kara Achterberg is the author of several books, and two of them are nonfiction books about dogs. Another Good Dog, One Family and 50 Foster Dogs, is what I'm probably going to keep referring to as her first book. 
And then 100 Dogs and Counting is what I'm going to keep calling her second book. Now, she has actually written several fiction books also, but if I talk about the first book and the second book, these are the two books that I'm talking about for our purposes today. So my conversation with Kara starts off with the story of dogs in her life and what led up to her family deciding to start fostering dogs. And I read her first book, Another Good Dog, and it's everything you need to know before you foster a dog. It's like, what is this foster life really about? What is this rescue life really about? And then you'll see at the end of Another Good Dog that Kara starts questioning, well, where are all these dogs coming from? And so she gets this idea that when she does a book tour for Another Good Dog, she's also going to turn it into a shelter tour. You see, the rescue organization that Kara was fostering dogs for, they were an organization that often pulled dogs from shelters in the southern part of the United States and transported them up to the north, the northeast part of the United States to try to find homes for them. And Kara started wondering, you know, where are all these dogs in these shelters in the south coming from? And that's what leads us to her second book, 100 Dogs and Counting. The subtitle of this one is One Woman, 10,000 Miles, and a Journey into the Heart of Shelters and Rescues. And I'll admit, this one gets a little emotional for me at times. I think there's one part of the interview where I get a little choked up and emotional. So I do want to just mention to everyone before you listen that the idea of dogs being in shelters and of dogs being euthanized for space in shelters is a recurrent theme of our conversation today. So please take care while listening. But I think that you're going to get so much more out of this conversation that it's worth the emotional journey that you might have to go through. Kara provides so many mic drop moments during our conversation. I think I even lost count of how many there were where I just wanted to be like, boom, <laughs> nailed it. It's not an exaggeration for me to say that I feel like this might be one of the most important conversations that I've ever had on the podcast. She's so insightful and circumspect and doesn't just focus on the problem, but also on getting us to solutions. And I can't wait for you to meet Kara Achterberg. So we are here today with Kara Sue Achterberg. How are you? I'm good. I'm doing well. How about you, Erin? I'm doing great. I have so much I want to talk to you about. I've just been blown away and just immersed in in reading your all your books for these last few weeks. But I always love to start out by asking about childhood experiences with dogs. So everybody who listens to the podcast knows I did not grow up with pets. And I didn't even know I liked dogs until I was 25. And it turns out I'm a dog person. So <laughs> I'm always curious what that looks like for everybody else who, who becomes immersed in, in all things dog. <laughs> oh, gosh. Dog... I We've always had a dog. Like we, growing up, we always had a dog. But we, I did get this um, little, this little beagle when I was a child. And I, um, we recently moved. And in moving, I uncovered this little pink diary with a key. <laughs> 
that I have been writing when I was like seven, eight, nine, like that time frame. And that in the book, the, the diary is completely about this little beagle named Candy, who I remember her fondly, but I don't remember that I was that obsessed, but apparently I was that obsessed because I wrote page after page after page in my little handwriting. So that's kind of how it started, but I really was not crazy over the moon for dogs. I was kind of a cat person as a teenager and young adult. It was just more convenient with an apartment. But um, once I got married, we decided to adopt a dog and that kind of launched us. And I had that dog for 18 years and she was just phenomenal. And she lit that fire. And then once we started fostering, oh my gosh, it just took off from there. And now our world revolves around dogs (laughs) pretty much 24-7. And the dog you had for 18 years, that was Lucy, right? Lucy. Because my first dog was Lucy and she is my podcast logo and like kind of everything I do is motivated out of this love for Lucy. (laughs) Oh, I love that. So you had Lucy for 18 years. So I imagine that's like this huge time of your life where you're having kids and it's, you know, really, I always say they kind of mark these chapters in our lives. And and so it seemed like uh, from reading your I, I say your first book, but you were actually an author before this. But, I so, what I, so your first dog book, yeah. uh, you talk about how you you wanted to bring in another dog, but you weren't quite ready to like make that commitment after losing Lucy. So is that how you guys decided to start fostering? Absolutely. Yeah, actually, totally. We had, did have another dog. We had this other dog, Gracie, who was for the kids and the, it was, she was kind of the kid's dog and she was just the most disobedient. Still is. I have her. She's 15 and a half. Oh, wow. She is uh, still just as disobedient as she was back then. Like we couldn't teach her to do anything. She wouldn't even take a treat. She didn't trust us. Um, so Lucy had been my dog raising kids, moving multiple times, training running with me, like uh, every, she did everything. And when she died, it was really hard for me. And when we started looking for another dog, I just couldn't commit to anybody. Every dog I met, I, I was like, well, this one's nice, but I don't think I could have it for 18 years. I mean, I just held every dog up to against her. And, and then I heard about fostering from another friend. Actually, she posted on Facebook and and I, I don't know why I hadn't realized it because we'd fostered horses. <laughs> so I don't know why I hadn't realized I could foster a dog. So that's why we started fostering. Um, pretty much we were going to try them out and then pick our next Lucy. And once I got into it, once I saw the situation, once I heard the stories and met dog after dog, I just, I, I couldn't imagine keeping one if it meant I couldn't save another. That's a really powerful statement right there. So, you know, I hear a lot of people who talk about fostering and they they don't think it would be a good time in their life because maybe they have children and things like this. But I actually, one of the takeaways I got from your first dog book was that uh, it kind of brought your family together and it seemed like it was a good like bonding activity for for your kids who were like all different ages and, and starting their own lives and activities. Yeah, it totally was. We, you know, when you have teenagers, sometimes it's, tricky, especially when they're very different. And at the time, our kids were seven, I gotta remember, I can't remember, 17, 14, and 11, maybe it was younger than that, maybe it was, anyway, something like that. And, um, you know, it's hard to find things that they all want to do, that they all want to be a part of, that we can do as a family. And fostering really brought us all together. I mean, we all, they all love dogs. And, 
once they got past the idea that we'd be getting a new dog every couple of weeks, they really, really got on board. I mean, they thought it was, it was cool. We would get, you know, some of them, one of them would love one dog. One of them would love a different dog. Some of them would, sometimes they'd all love the same dog that happened multiple times, but you know, we laughed about them. They were a part of our lives. We, they just, they really did help us bond even to this day. Like when I see, when I see them, when they come home, when we get together, we'll laugh about, especially Flannery O'Connor, we'll laugh about different of our dogs that just were, they created so many memories. And in fact, we, it's been so long now that um, sometimes some of the dogs that I have fostered have passed and their adopters will let me know. And, and I always, you know, I have to tell the kids and it's always really hard because to them, even if we only had the dog two weeks, they, they remember that dog and they bonded with that dog. Oh my goodness. I, I thought that, that was really interesting point I wanted to bring up for people who feel like, oh, you know, I have too much going on with the family that that there's a way to make it part of, of the family. So you were a writer before you started writing about dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Had you been writing, you know, since childhood? Was that always like your goal uh, as a career? No, actually, it wasn't. <laughs> I um, I always wrote. I mean, starting with that little pink diary, I always wrote, and I wrote for like the high school paper, and I wrote newsletters for the organizations that I worked for. Um, writing was always always a part of what I did, but I just never thought I could be a writer. <laughs> I just didn't think that. And um, in college, I took some literature classes, and I. I just thought, well, I don't, I don't get poetry. I don't get, you know, I just couldn't in some of the, it was hard to read some of that literature. And I just, for whatever reason, just never imagined I could do it. But once I had my third child, um, going to work didn't make sense financially for us. And, um, because the daycare, (laughs) so I stayed home, but I wanted to do something. So I began writing and that's when I started freelancing. And at the same time I began, um, learning a lot about organics because one of my children developed an autoimmune disorder that um, has no cure. And the only thing they can say is there's an environmental trigger to why it happens and why they, why they develop it. So I became really enmeshed in organics and started writing a blog about it. And from there I started writing articles about it. And, you know, this was before there was an organic aisle in the grocery store. So everybody wanted that information. And, um, so it was pretty easy to sell articles and get going on that. And then I did a newspaper column for a while, um, kept blogging. So when I started at the same time I was writing, I was working on a novel, but it was kind of like a, for fun for me that while the kids were napping, it wasn't like anything I thought would ever get published. (laughs) So I, um, but, so when I started fostering, I, of course, wrote about it. I wrote about it on my blog. And right about the time that I started that blog, I had I had gotten really brave and had queried and gotten an agent and was and had literally just signed a, a book deal the year that I started, I had just started fostering. So it was kind of really um, timely, I guess, um, writing, writing and dogs together, they helped each other. You know, I, I gained an audience by writing about the dogs and it helped me hone my skills as a writer. Cause I was writing in that blog almost every day in the beginning. So, yeah, so I, so I did, I have four novels out, <laughs> but, um, and hopefully another one, eventually I'd take, I've had a little bit of a hiatus cause I've, we've been moving and uh, I've been uh, launching a nonprofit and, but I do have a novel actually with my agent right now, hoping that we can start pitching soon. You know, that was going to be my dream. Once it became my dream was to become a published author and become a novelist, but the dog sort of sidetracked me. And when <laughs> another good dog started to do so well as a blog, my agent said, well, you know, 
this could be a really good book. And so um, we pitched it as a book and sold the idea and wrote the book. So that's how that all that journey began. And now I feel like I'm, I am so in the dog world that it, it's, it, and it's very, very different than the fiction world. I'll, I'll tell you that. And maybe it's, you know, <laughs> truth is stranger than fiction, right? So it, it is definitely stranger in many ways. <laughs> so I was going to ask you how another good dog came about. And so it's kind of this memoir of the first 50 dogs that your family fostered. And I mean, there's ups and downs. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's like injury to yourself and your your home. Yes. <laughs> you learn that most of these dogs are not uh, housebroken when you first get them for a variety of reasons from stress to having never lived in a home. And and wow, it's, you know, it's really a, a roller coaster. I mean, there's like stuff that's hysterically funny and there's stuff that's incredibly heartbreaking. And yet it's, it's such a reflection of everything that I know about the world of fostering and rescue. And, and I hope that everybody will go read it. And I have to ask you, the, the one that I was cheering for and the one that I was really <laughs> hoping that you guys would keep, can you tell us about Mama Bear? Oh, Mama Bear. Such a cool dog. Um, came all the way from Iraq. She was uh, amazing. Um, and that was not the norm for us. We That's the only international dog I've ever fostered. And she had actually been brought over by a different organization and then um, ended up in the care of the rescue that I fostered for because of, I believe it was allergies or something along those lines. She was just beautiful. It's so different. It looks doesn't look anything. It really doesn't look like an American dog. Um, she had she looked like uh, she was called Mama Bear because she looked like a white polar bear because she'd had her ears and her tail uh, chopped off by village kids while she was in Iraq, and um, she was just the most gentle, sweet soul. But she, you knew that there were scars. There were times like she was terrified to go through a narrow hallway. Um, there were things that would kind of freak her out, but she just had this aura about her and she did get a great home. I, in fact, I see her and at one of my book signings for another good dog at the Barnes and Noble in Delaware, she lives in Delaware. Um, he brought her to Barnes and Noble and she signed books with me. We use an ink pad and she signed books as some lucky people in Aww. Wilmington, Delaware got to have their books signed by Mama Bear and me, <laughs> but I think they really wanted her autograph the most. So <laughs> she's doing great. I do hear from him pretty regularly. He does stay in touch. So um, it's a happy ending and the allergies, her allergies have continued to be a little bit of a challenge. It's just, you know, so different. It's a different world for her here. Oh, that makes my heart happy that you still get to see her. <laughs> so I wanted to talk some about fostering and and just this whole crazy world of rescue. And, I, you know, one of the first scenes of Another Good Dog just really made me chuckle where you're like, it's midnight and I'm in the parking lot of a bowling alley <laughs> off of the 695 Baltimore Beltway and I'm waiting for this van. <laughs> And and I thought that is like such a perfectly accurate description of the rescue world. Yeah, the things we do for dogs, the things you never thought you would be. Yeah, doing. yeah, absolutely. In terms of that stuff, and in terms of caring for them, it's 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 just this. I don't know. It's kind of like being a new parent, I guess. You know, you you'll, you'll do anything for this situation. You find yourself in some really weird weird things that we all do for dogs. You know, but you know those people too. When you meet somebody else in rescue. Um, they're, they're kindred spirits in many, many ways because, you know, they're the same kind of crazy person that will drive through the <laughs> night or do whatever to save a dog. 
I I have this moment that stands out in my mind. It's probably going back to 2009. And uh, I was at this meeting of like sort of informal meeting of animal welfare people in Baltimore trying to put some programs together. And this woman gets a call on her cell phone and she comes back and she's just like, you know, got to go, got to pick up a dog. And, you know, and that just always stands out. Like that's exactly like that 24 seven on call, you know, lifestyle with your dogs. Cause these are people that have full-time jobs and families and everything else. But like, if there's a dog, I got to (laughs) go. Yep. Absolutely. And, and you touch on I've I've said I've met some of my best friends in life I would never have met if it wasn't for dogs and how we we end up creating this like network of people that like our lives would have never otherwise intersected if it wasn't for the the dogs in our lives and and maybe sometimes we don't share everything in common you know we might feel different politically or feel different you know spend our free time doing very different things but like there's always the dogs. And and I think that's such an important message that, that that's really kind of all that matters is your heart for the dog. <laughs> yeah. We meet, we, my husband used to talk all the time about the different people who came up our driveway to adopt the dog. And just like, we would never have met this part. We would like, he always was the one to remark on it. Like the interesting people that we would never encountered if it weren't for the dog in question. But I would say the same thing about the rescue people. Like when I started fostering, I had you know, I had all my ideas about the dog I was going to help and the people who would adopt the dog and all of that. But I had no idea that I was going to gain this like family. And, and that's what they really became to me. And it happens so instantaneously. Other people who foster, other people who volunteer and help, um, you just get so close so fast. And it, it's just amazing that you, the friends, you know, I would say any great argument for fostering is if, you know, you don't know anybody and you're looking for friends, go foster a dog. You will instantly have a pack of friends who will like drop everything to help you whenever you need it. It's just remarkable. It makes me think of, you know, there's like, you know, like that bond, like that combat bond or something. <laughs> yes, <you> exactly. <laughs> We've been through combat, especially those of us who foster puppies. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. You have quite the puppy addiction. It sounds I like. <laughs> do. I do. Too many. I, not that I, you know, yes, too many puppies. I've got two, two here right now. One left yesterday and two are leaving next week. Then I'll be puppyless, but I'm sure not for long. <laughs> And and one of the other things that, that just made me chuckle is like your your long suffering husband. <laughs> oh gosh, poor Nicholas. Yeah. And and at one point you're like, you know, he's kind of like an Eeyore, but luckily that was always my favorite Winnie the Pooh character. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He's done so much. You know, he's grumbled and grumbled, but then he I couldn't do this without him. So, you know, he helps me in a million ways. And a lot of times it's not directly with the dog, but it's helping me like get things prepared, building things, fixing a problem. Um, Like he, um, when we moved, we lost our whelping box, which is, you know, where mama dogs have their puppies. And uh, it just, it was just not worth moving. And once we took it apart, so he was like, I'm going to scrap this. And I was like, oh, and he goes, don't worry, I'll build you another. Like, and so, and that's something that's on his to-do list because, you know, we never know these puppies are leaving. And that means my puppy room's empty. I could get a call next week you know, a pregnant mama dog. So I got to be ready. So it's on his list to get that made. But those are the kind of things, you know, he'll grumble and grumble, but he'll, he'll do all these things. He cares just as much in his own way. So I wanted to talk some about fostering and I really loved that you included kind of like this list of common objections that you hear uh, that people 
are concerned about fostering. And of course, the most common one is it must be so hard to let them go. Yeah, that's the big one. Everybody always asks. And, you know, it can be hard. And sometimes it can be very easy, but it can be hard. <laughs> but the, the, the thing you know, they're saying in fostering is, you know, we let our hearts break so that theirs never will again. And I think that really sums it up. Like, it's a small sacrifice. The pain I might feel at letting this dog go um, to save another life. And, and that's what it comes down to. I have to let this one go so that I can get, so that I can save another one. And when you look at it that way, it's not that hard. And, you know, when my kids were younger and I, w- I would always talk about, these aren't our dogs. These are the dogs that we're, wa- you know, that we're helping. We are helping them get from shelter to a home and they're just staying with us for a while, you know, and I always have that in my mind. I am preparing them for a home. So I work with every dog I have to help them be ready for their new home, whether that's housebreaking, crate training, teaching them some manners, teaching them to walk on a leash, um, loving the crap out of them because that's one thing they really need and haven't had, trying to make them physically healthy. Um, you know, lately for me, I've gotten in, gone down the road of, I buy them a lot of probiotics and vitamins and special foods and, um, you know, toys that will engage because, I want them to be the best dog they can be when they get adopted so that that home is their home forever. So when you see it that way, it's not hard to let them go. It's a celebration. It was wonderful. One left just my, one of my puppies left yesterday and it was such a proud moment to show them that I taught this little, um, I don't know how old, 12 week old puppy to sit and, and, you know, and, and was, he was really learning not to jump on you. And so it was just great. They were so excited. They took him home. He's going to have a great life and I'm happy for him. So so yeah, that, that sort of, blo- you know, buffers the blow a little bit and people stay in touch. That's the other really great thing is I have a Facebook group and most, a lot of fosters do for my adopters and they post pictures and updates and, um, and, and most of them do stay in touch and that helps too. Do people ever get worried that they're going to get stuck with like an unadoptable dog for a really long time? <laughs> You know, that can happen. So it's a really important question. Anybody who's fostering is to ask of the the organization they're going to foster for what happens if no one adopts this dog or what happens if this dog doesn't get along with my dog or whatever, or what happens if I go on vacation? Like those are questions you really have to ask of the organization before you commit to fostering. That's why if you can foster for a shelter, it's awesome because they obviously can have the dog back at the shelter if they need to. So it's always a, a good idea to to ask all of those questions ahead of time so that you don't <laughs> end up with a dog. You know, we have fostered some. Um, we've had a couple that were we had for a year. And um, luckily, all of them did find a home. I right, currently have two foster dogs. One I've had since, when did I get Marley? I think I've had her since early March, so a while. And the other one I got at the end of April. So Right now, dogs are not moving quickly through rescues. So most people who are fostering are, are having that dog for, for a period of time. So you need to know there's a backup plan for sure. And is there an expense that comes with fostering or do a lot of the expenses get paid by the rescue? Like, do people ever get worried about like, is this going to be like a financial burden? If people worry about that, in fact, we just posted today on, on um, my organization's <laughs> Facebook page, I think it was today or last night, a really great article about how how um, fostering is such an inexpensive hobby. And it can be. If you're fostering for a good organization, again, ask those questions. Who provides the food? Who who pays for the vet bills? Who does? And, and, and pretty much every organization I know 
buys those things, food and then pays vet bills and pays for all. It shouldn't cost you anything really other than your time, your effort, possibly the condition of your carpet if you're not good <laughs> at managing your dog. But um, it shouldn't cost you anything. You know, that said, most of us do spend money. Um, but, I, you know, I, after listening to my husband <laughs> complain about it. We keep those receipts and we claim those because, you know, that's a donation. If I go out and buy a bag of food, a special food for a foster dog that's struggling or um, a new crate or whatever, uh, we write that off. So. Oh, that's a good tip. It should not be an expensive thing for anybody. So I had to laugh when I was reading the end of another good dog. Cause there's kind of like this moment of foreshadowing where <laughs> Uh, you go to this brewery and you're meeting with some women from the Scott County Humane Society in Virginia, and they're talking about the intake numbers that they have and the heartbreaking decisions that they're having to make. And I think that it seems like you're kind of the, the wheels start turning of like, where are these dogs coming from? And then that kind of leads into you writing the next book. <laughs> That's absolutely what happened. Yeah, meeting um, meeting um, Rachel and Ashley, it was really, you know, it suddenly clicked. You know, the dog, I had had a bazillion dogs at that point, probably over 50, I can't remember. And hearing their stories and, and just the tears in their eyes, I just, I was like, wow. Like it just, the people part of it came to me. It wasn't just this endless stream of dogs. It suddenly became a little more real. So when another good dog came out, and um, some of my book signings were in the South, I immediately glommed on to, okay, I'm going to go to the shelters. I'm going to go see the shelters, go see where my dogs come from. And it, initially I thought it was going to be this really fun experience. And I put out a call for donations. I said to people, Hey, I'm going to the shelters. Can you, know, if you want to donate so much stuff came in, I had to rent an enormous cargo van, which was really challenging to drive and we stuffed it to the gills and thank goodness my husband's an engineer he was like doing all the calculations to make sure we weren't <laughs> overloaded because we had so much canned dog food um and dog food and everything else under the sun there was so much stuff in that van and one of my best friends decided to come with me and she's not a dog person it's just funny that she really isn't i mean she would always be like every time she'd meet one of my foster dogs she'd be like i'm not a dog person but this one's kind of nice like every <laughs> single time and now she does have it she did end up adopting a dog oh. but um so Lisa and I set off on this, what we thought was going to be our Thelma and Louise trip. We were so excited. It was summertime. We were headed south. We were going to do book signings and we were going to go to the shelters and deliver all these wonderful things and meet dogs. And, you know, the first couple of days were that because we were doing book signings and we were in Virginia Beach and Richmond and it was fun. And then we got to North Carolina and we went to a shelter in North Carolina. And I just remember... We well, first of all, we had a hard time finding. We finally found it, and it was of course tucked away next to like the electrical box thing and the and a, over the train tracks next to the water tower. I mean, it was just in the worst part of town. It's very little rural, impoverished town, and tiny little building. And I thought, how could there be dogs in there? Well, there weren't. The dogs were out back in in like kennels and. Just walking in and meeting them and seeing the stacks of crates of um, cats lining the hallway and the smell of the place, I was so, oh my gosh, I was so overwhelmed that I had to like excuse myself and go use the restroom and go in there so that I could pull it together. I was, I was crying. I was trying to like... I, I just, the reality hit me that how hard this is. And here I am waltzing in here and what the heck do I have to offer? Like, I just felt like a fake and I shouldn't be there and uh, there's nothing I can do. And 
this is so hard, but I, you know, I pulled it together, went back outside, we walked through, um, and got the tour of the place, met dogs, you know, and, and the reality was there suddenly, like they are struggling every day. I asked, how many dogs did you take in, um, in August? This was August or early September. And they said a hundred dogs. And I said, and how many did you adopt out? And I believe they said five and do the math on that. Right. It's really hard, hard math. Luckily they have a lot of rescue help. They had a volunteer rescue coordinator who was working her tail off and performing miracles, getting those dogs out. But it was tough. Eighty percent of the dogs in that shelter were heartworm positive, which made sense. They don't have the money to to treat, to do any kind of preventative care, and they were right next to a swamp, the dismal swamp. As a matter of fact, we were kind of laughing about that as we were driving through. Named. Yeah, yeah, and um, the that was when it really became very clear to me that I have to do something. I cannot just sit up there on my farm in Pennsylvania and foster puppies. I have to do more. Um, and from there I went to, I think 13 or 12 or 13 other shelters on that tour in uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia on the way back. And, um, Scott County included in that. And that was a really awesome experience. And I pulled dogs at Scott County and got to drive them home. And that was my first transport, which was really awesome. So that just changed my life totally changed my life and definitely led to writing 100 dogs and counting and, and um, starting who will let the dogs out. So the, the organization that you have been fostering for and volunteering with, it seems like they primarily were pulling dogs out of the South and bringing them up North. Is that right? Yes, pretty much. Yeah. They do a few international situations, but primarily it's, they pull them out of high risk, high kill shelter areas. I recently, uh, last month, was on a little road trip up to New York for a dog conference, and because uh, that's the only reason I would, you know, drive to some other state by myself. <laughs> it struck me both on the way there and on the way back, I passed uh, like tra- basically like transport vehicles from shelters that were making those kinds of treks, you know, like they, one of them had like a Vermont uh, license plate, you know, and I'm passing them in like New Jersey going South. And like, I think one of the other ones had, uh, had like a Georgia license plate that was like heading North. And I was just kind of like, this is what happens. Like there's so many people who are dedicated to saving the lives and, and you really touch on the fact of like, there's kind of this culture, cultural difference. And, and poverty and that urban poverty is different from rural poverty. And I really appreciated how you, how you, you know, went in, went into some of that because that's kind of part of the big picture of, of where all these dogs are coming from. It is a big piece of it. It's still a big piece of it. And, you know, um, that said, I also know having now been to over 120 shelters in 12 States, I know places that are poor and up against all kinds of odds who are saving every savable dog. So I know it's possible and it can be done. And I've learned a ton and I'm actually working on a new book about that and um, about how you do that and the solutions that there are. But poverty is hard, but it's, it's everywhere, you know, and, um, and sometimes people will be like, well, how, you know, why are you spending all this money on dogs when people need need care or people assume we don't care about people because we care about dogs. You know, I've gotten that. Dogs. Yeah. I've gotten that many times. And I, and I think, you know what, I believe we have enough bandwidth to care about humans and care about dogs. And I also think that dogs 
can be such a healing presence for people. And one of the things that I hope at some point we address is the idea that that it's expensive to have an animal, a dog, but it's something that can be life-saving to people, particularly people struggling. And they should have an animal and, and poverty shouldn't keep them from having one. And at some point, I hope that that's an issue that we all we all do come to terms with. But yeah, poverty is a it's a factor, but it's not an excuse. It's it's a it's a piece of the piece of the puzzle, but it's definitely not an excuse for killing dogs or warehousing dogs or causing dogs to suffer. You know, a lot of the work I do here in Baltimore, the volunteer work I do is that we provide services, like basically like a free pop-up veterinary clinic for people to get medical care for their dogs. Because, you know, you see these statistics that like up to 40% of the dogs turned into shelters are because they can't afford medical treatment. You know, so we'll do these clinics and and sometimes we get people like who are just walking by because we basically do a pop-up thing in a park somewhere where people can go right in their own neighborhood. They don't need transportation. And, you know, and we'll have other people coming by like, oh, you're not helping people. And and, like, I do think we are helping people because, you know, when you're living in an urban, you know, Baltimore has a violence issue. You know, people are traumatized. And, you know, to be able to come home and have that dog, to be able to have this dog that gets you out to get some kind of exercise to keep you bonded with your neighbors. I mean, I think it is a huge thing. And and I get really upset when you hear that, like, oh, you know, if you can't afford a dog, you shouldn't have it, like that kind of of thing. And, you know, I, I really hope that we're getting closer to to making people realize that, like, it it's not like that simple of a, of a statement to make. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not. So I had to ask, what was this experience like for your friend, Lisa, who's like not at all a dog <laughs> person? You know, she, she was just as stunned as I was at that first shelter. And that was for her, literally the first shelter she'd ever been to. At least I had been to some, you know, like nice shelters. You know, I adopted dogs before. She'd never done any of that before. So we were both just stunned in the silence after we left that first shelter. But man, as, as it went on, she got just as involved and just, you know, we both were in tears many, many times. And that first night, I think it was the first night when we got back to the hotel, I was just, I was wiped out. I was like, I just can't believe that. Oh no, it was after we were at Oconee. We were at a shelter where we were seeing dogs um, that had big X's written on their kennel cards. And, and they had these big red X's across them. And I, I thought I knew what it was for, but I wasn't sure. And I asked the person and they told me that, you know, they take in 500, that shelter took, took in about 500 dogs a month. Uh, and they didn't have a place for all of them to go. So the dogs with X's on them were the dogs that could be euthanized when they needed a kennel. And that was really hard to see, especially because like one of the kennels we looked in had a six month old puppy, but he was black, you know, and he could have been a pit bull. He could have been a lab. He could have been anything. Nobody knows, but he had a big red X on, or she had a big red X on her kennel card. And it was just super hard. And when we got back to the hotel, I was just like, wrecked. I was just like, I don't think I can keep doing this. I don't know if I can handle this. And Lisa was like, you have to tell this, you have to talk right now. And she like forced me to do a Facebook live. And I was like, Oh, I look horrible. I was exhausted. I was worn, worn through emotionally. And I spoke totally from my heart. And it was probably that moment where I really, really committed to like, we have to do something. If I didn't know about this, then a lot of people don't know about this. 
you know, I was up to my eyeballs. I had fostered, I think I was up to a hundred dogs by then, but, um, I thought, how could I be that deep into rescue, save this many dogs and not know it was like this in yeah. these shelters down there. And, and that just spurred me because I thought if I don't know, a lot of people don't know, and I have to tell them, I don't have a lot I can do. I don't have a ton of money. I can only foster, you know, a few dogs at a time, but I can write. So I'm going to write about it. And so that's, that's when I started working on 100 Dogs and Counting and trying to get that book out to tell, to tell the stories, to get people into those shelters. And we've continued to do that um, with the nonprofit that I started after writing that book. You know, one of the things that really comes through as you're telling the story, uh, um, I think it was the first trip you talk about like the difference that leadership makes and that there Mm -hmm. was, you know, Dr. Sanders at pause and, and she's just like, yeah, we're not going to euthanize for space anymore. And like, we just stop. It's like, I I wish it was more clear that this is a taxpayer issue Mm -hmm. that, you know, your tax dollars can either go to euthanization or to saving dogs. And quite frankly, sometimes it's cheaper to save dogs Mm -hmm. (laughs) if that's what you're worried about. (laughs) Right. Right. It absolutely is. You know, I, after going to so many shelters interviewing, I don't know how many hundred animal control officers and shelter directors and rescue directors and volunteers and and veterinarians. It's really clear to me that leadership is the most important piece. And Dr. Sanders was the first that I met where, you know, she, she walked into a shelter, high, high kill shelter. They were euthanizing 90% of the animals that came in there. It was in a poor area of South Carolina, big shelter, enormous. I I can't, I think they can hold like 300 dogs if they need to at a time. Um, And they, they handle, I don't know how many thousand, 5,000 a year, I think. Was it the number then? I don't know what it is now. Um, Probably more because Dr. Sanders. And so she came into that job. She's a veterinarian. Um, and she took that job. She left private practice, took the job as director at Anderson County PAWS. PAWS stands for Pets Are Worth Saving. And um, she took that job. And when she walked in, she just said to the staff, we're just going to stop killing dogs. That was her answer. And I said to her, how did you do this? Because we just decided to stop killing dogs. And she told me, and actually what their rescue coordinator also, I talked with her a bit. She had been working there. And she said it was a normal day to come in and have to like euthanize 24 kittens. That was like a normal day. She said it was so hard. But when Dr. Sanders came in and said that, she said, we actually fought with her because we were, we couldn't see any other way. We were like, well, what are we going to do? We got all these animals. We only have this much space and they couldn't see another way. And it took a leader who said, we'll find another way. We will figure this out. And she did. She started she doubled up dogs in kennels, which immediately gave them some breathing room and also made the dogs happier because they like company. Um, she just instituted all kinds of practices, like they had treats outside of every single kennel. So every time a staff member walked by or a visitor came, they could give a dog a treat. So what did that do? It taught every dog to come to the front of their kennel and sit for a treat. So when someone's coming through, instead of a crazy dogs barking and being wild, they sit in front of their kennel and they're much more likely to get adopted. It was just smart mm-hmm. things like that, partnering with rescues, doing a lot of counseling and giving out free dog food, free heartworm treatments, like just everything. She was amazing and still is amazing. And then I saw that happen in other places too, places, smaller, little tiny animal control dog pounds, basically, um, where they just made that decision. The leadership said, we're not going to do this, whether it's the animal control officer, the director, the 
you know, the county council person, whoever is the, you know, the butts, buck stops here, whoever that person is, if they say we're going to, we are not going to kill dogs anymore for space, they can stop killing dogs for space. There are other solutions out there, but if you aren't looking for them, if you're just staying in the problem and just continuing to complain about the problem, then you can't solve it. You can't find the solution. And so I know that as the most critical piece, there are three things that I know if a shelter has, no matter where they are, no matter their situation, they can, they can save dogs is if they have leadership, if they have veterinary access, that's a huge crisis in the South. There's just not enough. Like, it's awesome that you guys take your pop-up events out to the public. Well, many places, even if someone wants to get their dog speed, it's expensive or the clinic is on the other side of town or in a different county or several hours away. And that person may or may not have transportation or be able to get off to you know work to go and do that. There's a million barriers for them being able to do that. It's not just cost. A lot of times it is cost um, or having veterinary access to a lot of things like preventative care, all of those things. So veterinary access is critical. And then the third thing is community engagement. And if your community is engaged and involved at your shelter, whether it's volunteering, fostering, advocating for for the dogs, adopting, just getting in the building and helping and voicing their opinion and voting with, you know, with their opinion, um, wanting to save dogs, you can save it. I've seen it happen in really rural places, leadership, veterinary access, community engagement, those three pieces, if you have those three pieces, it's only a matter of time for that shelter is sustaining itself and saving every savable animal that comes in the building. I feel like that's a mic drop moment right there. (laughs) (laughs) So you also document about the trip, you know, after you go on your book tour, you've made numerous, numerous trips since then. And you took your son who was a young teenager at the time and what was that experience like for him? I, it seemed like at times it was overwhelming, even even for him. It was. You know, he had been a part of this from the beginning. He was my my littlest. I remember him. He was, you know, nine, eight or nine. I don't know what he was, but he was young when we first started. And we our first little beagle, Galena, who we fostered, it was, you know, you get, there are special people in the world who love beagles. I'm not one of them, but um, <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. Um so anyway, so I remember him sitting there with Galena on his lap and saying, why can't we just keep her? And I said, because then we can't save another. And he was like, save them from what? And I told him, you know, that there are just so many dogs in the shelter and they don't have enough room. So sometimes they have to kill dogs. And he just was like, he just looked at her like they would kill her. Like he couldn't believe it. So like his understanding of the problem started really early. So when he was in high school, he really got into photography And he had listened to me talk about the shelters when I would come back and tell these stories. And I would talk about how people needed to see, they needed to see what was going on. They needed to be in their shelters. And so he asked, could he come bring his camera and take pictures of the situation to try to help, to try to raise awareness. And at first I told him no, because you know, you have to, you have school, you can't come. I'm going during the school year, but then he kind of pushed and pushed. So summer after his junior year, I, he convinced me to take him and I took him and we didn't, uh, you know, I knew it would be a little different tour than normal. I, I, we wouldn't be able to go the pace. I usually go, we wouldn't be able to go to as many shelters. And I wanted to be able to cut and run if necessary. I thought if he can't handle this, I, I, you know, so we, so we kind of went into a very open, like, uh, we'll see where we go. And I have some wonderful connections, um, outside of Nashville, super amazing rescue people, Trisha and Laura and Laura works with Casa Transport. If you ever want to see 
the, they're the most powerful organization, I think, in Tennessee in terms of moving dogs out and saving lives. And they are amazing. She runs Casa Transport. At the time, it was just an idea in her mind. And she was, she was actually moving dogs out of her basement. And um, we stayed with Laura. And she hooked us up with Trisha, who runs a rescue called Rare Rural Animal Rescue Effort. I always get it wrong, but I think that's it. Um, so Trisha took us out to the dog pounds in Western Tennessee. And it was hard, really, really hard. And um, I mean, we did go to two normal shelters before we went out there. I wanted him to see kind of a, a, a good shelter and a struggling shelter. So we went to a, one in the shelter, a shelter that's in the richest county in all of Tennessee and saw a beautiful, amazing shelter doing amazing things. And then we went to a shelter that is struggling. Um, it's it's kind of up and down. It's in a down right now. It was kind of in an up when we were there, but it's never been 100%. And then we went out to the dog pounds and it was shocking because in the dog pounds in Western Tennessee, they are truly pounds in in the sense that they impound dogs. That is all they do. They do not adopt them out. They don't take care of them. They don't try to heal them or help them in any way. They hold them for a prescribed period of time in that county. I believe it was five days, legal day, uh, like real days, no weekends. Their legal straight hold was five days. And after that, they would euthanize dogs. And so they would bring them into this this cement bunker is what it looked like to me. And they had indoor outdoor access, but it was all cement. And then they just sort of had a channel running through them that for the urine to run out of. Um, and for when they hose it down and they would put the dog in these, in these little rusted out, they were very rusty and nasty spaces, no heat, no air conditioning. And they would hold them there and they would give them a five gallon bucket of water and a big giant bowl of food. And that, that was their five day supply And Trisha was one of the rescues that was going in there. She had made connections with the dog catchers and that literally was their titles. I had to ask because I thought she was just calling them that, but they really are, they are paid dog catchers. So she she made friends with one of the dog catchers and they gave her a key. So she was able to go in and like pull dogs out through her rescue and save lives. She was the only rescue going in there. And I believe now there's one other rescue going in there. It's still in the same situation though. Hasn't changed. So going in there was was really tough because it had been a while. Like Trisha wasn't sure there'd even be dogs because she had just pulled from them like two weeks prior to that and she hadn't heard. But there were four dogs there and they were in really awful shape and it was a really awful situation. And in particular, this one little pit bull um, who was just totally emaciated and covered in poop and just the sweetest thing because we pulled her out. We vaccinated, uh, treated him for flea and tick, tested him for heartworm. Um, cleaned their kennels, refilled their food and water. And that was all we could do. We couldn't take take anybody with us. Trisha didn't have room. I, I wasn't prepared and didn't even know. Um, but it was hard. And Ian, um, Ian just kind of stayed very quiet, just kept taking pictures and video and keeping his distance from the dogs, from us, from everybody. So I knew something was up. And um, that was, like, I think, the fourth stop we'd made on that trip. And afterwards he was like, I, I, I need to go. I, I want to go home. I, I don't, I don't think I can keep, it was just that it was so hard to see. And we still had to go to another place. So, um, he, he made it through and he took some powerful pictures and we ultimately adopted that pit bull. <laughs> I went back down in September, Trisha pulled her. She saved all four of those dogs. Now the hard part is she saved all four of those dogs. One of them was heartworm positive. One of them had distemper and brought it to her rescue. And then she had to be quarantined all summer. So that meant that that little pit bull was quarantined at her rescue all summer. And when I went back down in September, I was able to 
bring her back with me. So she's our dog now and she's a phenomenal agility, dock diving, frisbee (laughs) catching, phenom. She's amazing. I love it. Yeah, I I had this list of just like unsung heroes, you know, and Laura in Tennessee was definitely one of them. The other one that had me really emotional reading was about Dave in Alabama. Yes, Dave and Shark. Yeah, Shark is is incredible. Um, Safe Haven Animal Rescue Kennel is what that stands for. And they are in the bottom, um, they call it the grass wire corner of Alabama. And he he took over the pound down there and turned it into a legit shelter. And in fact, now you'll be happy to know they raised money and they have a beautiful shelter. Um, we keep meaning to get back there. We haven't, we, we will. So it's not in the middle of the county dump anymore. <laughs> no longer a little stand, you know, barely a, just basically a pavilion in the middle of the landfill. It's no longer that they actually have Dave donated. Um, he donated land and um, they raised the money and they built a legit shelter. And it was, it was just, it's great that they have it. It was really, that one was such a, you know, there, was, there was so much meaning on many, many levels because first of all, the shelter was in the dump, literally drive into the dump and it's set in the middle between two places where they're two different areas where they were um, actively burying trash. And you pass on the way, this was kind of interesting to me on the drive in, which was rutted and rough and you, had, you need a four wheel drive to get in. There was a building and that building housed well, he called them the juvenile delinquents, but it was like a reform kind of, you know, center for kids who had gotten kicked out of school or, or, you know, got in trouble with the law. And it was just interesting to me that this county was dumping their kids that were trouble and their dogs they didn't want in the landfill. Yeah. Um, that was just really very powerful right there, <laughs> symbolism yeah. or whatever. Um, but yeah, happily that, I, you know, I think the reform place is still there, but uh, the dogs have gotten out of there and are, are in a shelter and they're awesome. You can look them up, Safe Haven Animal Rescue Kennel. They are still very active. Dave has stepped down as acting director, but he's still very much a voice and a, a part of that organization. So one of the issues I was so glad to see that you touched on, because I've seen this play out here locally before, is there's kind of this delicate balance between like, Sometimes shelters can do better, but you kind of have to be careful about how much you say and what you say to whom, because they can cut you out and ban you from being able to, to help dogs. Yeah, that's really true. Um, We do have to walk a fine line and I try to find something good to focus on every time we visit because I'm there to help them. I want to help them. And I know they're kind of like hesitant sometimes to let us in. They see us as press because it's just usually me and um, Nancy, who's a photographer who travels with me and co-founded the organization with me. So we have to work really hard to find to find good things to say because there are good things to say. And I've tried really hard lately of late, especially to just focus on the solutions. Like let's not dwell on the problem. And there's a saying that, you know, you can't solve a problem with the same mind you created that problem with. So like if we spend all our hours, you know, digging into this problem and complaining and lamenting and, you know, examining the problem, we're wasting our energy. We should be putting our energy into the solution. And there are solutions. I've seen them. And so when we go into a shelter that could be doing a lot of things better, I walk very carefully. I, you know, I look for openings in places where I can help and places where we can do something to help that shelter do better. Um, and, and many times they're very accepting of it and we're able to help. And sometimes they are not. And it's pretty rare that I, that I will, 
you know, call anybody out, but, uh, but I, but I will show exactly what's going on. I will write honestly about what we're seeing and let the reader decide whether that's okay or not. One other thing I was really glad to see that you touched on is I feel like this term's a little bit like out of fashion now, but the term no kill. Yes. And how that's such a, a loaded term. And, and I think it, it started from like a good place, but then there's so much complication that, that goes into it. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, no kill brought us so far. It was a great thing. And when it started, it, it was a great movement. I mean, the number, the, the amount of change that happened because of the no kill movement, it cannot be disputed. It, it just brought us so, so far. The problem now is it's it's being weaponized. It's being turned into like it, it can create problems. It can create for one thing that we see is warehousing of dogs, which is never good. And it, there really is no such thing as a no kill shelter, and that's that's misleading to think to let the public think that's true. There is no shelter, no shelter anywhere that doesn't ever ever euthanized dogs. You have to. There's no way around it. There is no way around it whether the dog is medically, you know, unsavable, which is why I always try to use the word save. We save all the savable dogs, which is redundant, but I don't know any other way to save it. If it's savable, you save it. There are dogs that cannot be saved. And I understand that. I understand there are dogs who who either have been given demons by the way that they've been treated or they were born with demons that they can't that, you know, that we cannot understand or manage or help. And those dogs are not at peace in this world. And it's not, I don't think, a horrible thing to euthanize those dogs. It's a pretty peaceful death. Um, I don't believe in impounding them the way they do in places and making them suffer right up to the bitter end. But um, I think you give them every possible chance, but you cannot save them all. That's not possible. And anybody who thinks that has not has never worked in a shelter, has never spent time in a shelter, and to my mind, doesn't really love dogs because some dogs, there's no choice. So there is no such thing as a no-kill shelter. That said, killing for space, there's there's never a reason to do that. There's never a reason to do that in my mind. There's There are answers, and we all have to be part of those answers and those solutions. And fostering right now is so needed. If people, If more people would step up and foster right now, the shelters would not be feeling as though they have to euthanize because there are many places right now at this moment in history, our numbers are going up and not down in terms of euthanizations. And that's hard for me. It's really hard. I felt like we were making so much progress and now we're not because of many, many factors, a perfect storm of you know, post-pandemic economic issues, housing crisis, BSLs, overbreeding by backyard breeders and puppy mills, to meet the demand of the pandemic and then all these people who want their designer dogs. Um, there's just a million reasons why right now there are way too many dogs coming into shelters and not enough going out. And fostering is a one thing that could give us a little breathing room. I mean, I'm very hopeful this is a lump in the snake and we just have to get through it. Um, I hope that's the case. I don't know if that's the case. I guess time is going to tell us whether these numbers are here to stay or if this is a lump in the snake. But if if people who have hesitated have thought, well, maybe I could foster, if they would just do it, just jump in and do it, knowing that you're going to have support, you're going to have help, I think you'll have a phenomenal experience. 
it would give them the breathing room. It's the one answer. Because, you know, the adoptions are, are really slowing down. Rescues are closing down, struggling, o- you know, overwhelmed. And the numbers keep coming in. And, you know, where where do you find some space? Well, fostering, that would that would create some space. So anybody who's ever thought of it, I, I wish they all would. And anybody who's already fostering, find a way to do more. I, I've been a rescue director in Georgia who said, and this is cats, you know, cats are totally different. We could go down that road as a way more complicated road. But she said, you know, if everybody just had a bathroom cat and I, I was like, a bathroom cat? What does that mean? And she said, well, anybody could foster a cat in their bathroom. And if everybody would just take home a bathroom cat, we wouldn't be killing so many cats because we are killing a lot more cats than dogs in this country, yeah. a way bigger number by, yeah. you know, so, and cats are easy and it, they're kind of, you know, they kind of could be like the entry drug. You, you foster a cat in your bathroom and then next thing <laughs> you know, you might have a room full of puppies in your basement. Who knows? So yeah, if everybody would just foster, it would just, it would really, really could go a long way to getting us through this time. One other thing I wanted to touch on is I think sometimes people say this and they think it's being well-meaning, but you really do a great job of spelling out how it's more short-sighted. But the idea of mandatory spay and neuter and how, while that might sound like this great idea on paper, you know, it's really not helpful. Like the execution of it is really not going to to help solve anything. Yeah, it's hard. You know, you you want to you want to encourage people to do it, and, and it would be it would you know it's a huge piece of the puzzle. We definitely need spay and neuter, but I don't think you can mandate it across the board because then you know who's enforcing that and what burden are you putting on the animal control officers who have got around go around what and check genitals? I mean, I don't know how you do that. How you would really truly enforce it? Now you can mandate that everything being adopted from a, sh- a municipal shelter has to be spayed and you can and you should mandate ev- everything leaving a municipal shelter to be spayed and neutered. I do believe in that because, you know, they're, they're going to come back to you if you don't do that. And any shelter that's adopting out unspayed, unneutered animals is, is never going to get out of their hole. They're going to stay right there. So, um, yeah, smart dog laws can go a long way. You know, all we have to do is look to the Northeast to see smart dog laws and, and what they've done and how they have, you know, fixed the, the situation many, many ways. So I'd love to see more of more smart dog laws happening. And your journey has continued even after the rating of 100 dogs and counting. And you've now, you know, we, we touched on the fact you have started a nonprofit who will let the dogs out. And and your work has is continuing today and you blog about it and you're visiting shelters and trying to help. Yeah, we do. So who will let the dogs out? Our mission is to raise awareness and resources for homeless dogs and the heroes who fight for them. And we travel um, and we tell stories and we look for ways that we can help, whether it's networking for them. Um, we have a little program that we grant we have a grant to regrant through the ASPCA and we give out Insta grants, which are resource grants. Because one of my gripes has always been that we go to these shelters that are struggling and they're the ones who need the money for spay and neuter. And they're the ones who need money for transport. They're the ones who need capital improvement money, but they are not the ones who have the ability to get that money from the bigger organizations that give that money out. They don't have a grant writer on staff. They, they may not even have internet access or a computer. They, they don't have the time. Many of them have only a high school education. So writing those grants, it's really competitive and hard and they don't have the ability to do it. So I have always dreamed of being able to, when we travel around, be able to see a need and meet it immediately. And 
so we created what we call the Instagram program and the ASBCA gave us a very tiny little grant to regrant. So start that program and we, we've done it this year and we gave out three. We just are, uh, we just did our third this week. So I'm excited. We're out of money though. So that's kind of hard too. But so we did things like when we were in North Carolina at a shelter that where the dogs live outside on cement and it does get cold in North Carolina. The day we were there was about maybe pushing 40 degrees and really windy and and these dogs are outside exposed on the cement wind is just blowing right through their you know the chain link and they're and they had a lot of hounds every one of those hounds was just shaking like a leaf they were so cold and they have to the only thing they had for any kind of um comfort is a half they had a like a barrel a plastic barrel with a end cut off of it which isn't very comfortable for anybody and you're not getting off the cold cement when you're laying on plastic on the cold cement so um so we gave them a grant and purchased corunda beds for every one of their kennels and that was our first insta grant so the dogs you know it was all that we could do we, we can't I, I would love to do a lot more for that but we uh just had this small amount of money so we we spent fifteen hundred dollars and we bought corunda beds for every dog in that kennel um, and that was our first grant. And then the second grant we gave out in Mississippi and it was a place that it's what, Mississippi is a tough state. There are no municipal shelters at all. Um, every, they don't even have animal control in most of the counties. Some, most of the cities do, but the counties don't have animal control services. So anything that you have out there is a rescue organization. So there's a rescue organization called Mid-South Animal Welfare something. Oh gosh, I should know them. It's South Animal Welfare. Maybe that's what it's called. Anyway, um, they were keeping dogs in chicken coops because that's all they got. I mean, refurbished chicken coops, but you know, they're, they're having a hard time. And um, so we gave them Instagram and bought kennel panel paneling to make kennels, to make actual kennels. They're still outside, but they have a roof now and they have, and they have um, chain link, you know, real kennels instead of wire, chicken wire that rusts and dogs can bite through. Yeah. And then we just did our last one and it's Operation Hot Dogs. We just started it and um, it's for a shelter in Mississippi. Also, that moved into a building that the city gave them or the county gave them, didn't give them, but is renting to them for nearly free. And it's all cement and it has no air conditioning. So Mississippi in the south and these in the the county refurbished it for them by making cement kennels so the walls are cement so there's no ventilation no airflow um they moved in at the end of last summer and um they had puppies that died from the overheat the the temperature was 103 in the kennels at one point so um we are working with them to try uh we just yesterday actually purchased a building through our Instagram program. It's a, like a portable building, 12 by 24 building. And they're going to move the most vulnerable animals out there. They're going to run electric and put AC in it. And they're going to have the most vulnerable animals out there. And so uh, it's called Operation Hot Dogs. And so we're trying to raise additional money to to fully fund it because we spent all of our Instagram money and then all of our fall tour money <laughs> to, to buy this building. And um, we're fundraising for it currently, hoping to pay for that and possibly another building or two. So- Wow. We're doing what we can. I mean, obviously that we'd love it if the people of Mississippi would do that or the county would do that, but the counties refused to put air conditioning in. The quote was $50,000 and this is a nonprofit organization and they have 211 dogs and they cannot, it, it doesn't make sense for them to raise $50,000 when they're just trying to, you know, keep these dogs alive and, and put air conditioning in a building they don't own. 
And mm-hmm. even if they did that, as I keep saying to people who are like, well, they should just do that. Even if they did that, if tomorrow they had a $50,000 today, they got a $50,000 check and tomorrow they, they found a contractor, they wouldn't be getting air conditioning in this enormous building till, you know, Christmas. So it, t- it takes time. And same with the grant money. Yeah, they could apply for some big grants. They wouldn't see that money till next winter if they got them, you know, and they have a staff of seven caring for 211 dogs and I don't know how many cats. So there's no room for that. So there's so much need. I could talk forever about it. So I'll, I'll shut up. But, um, you know, that's our hope is to grow our Instagram program. So as we travel around and we see these needs, we can actually, we can actually um, meet them and help right there, right then when they, you know, when they're in it and they need it. I hope everybody's going to follow your blog. I will put a link in the show notes because I keep checking on these stories and I'm just, I mean, I'm just shocked, you know, and, and I feel, you know, we're, we have so much privilege living here in the mid Atlantic, you know, in the Northeast where these things are more prioritized. It's like, you don't realize it until you start hearing these stories. And one of the ones that's really stuck in my mind ever since I read it would you tell us about Shelby at Greenbrier Animal Control? Oh, Shelby, she's awesome. She's amazing. She's got like five kids under eight, I think. It's incredible, incredible. And she is a one-woman show. She's at this little teeny tiny dog pound in Shelby, I mean, in Greenbrier, Tennessee, which is right outside of Nashville. And it's it's pretty small. Um, she works her tail off taking care of those dogs. She does not euthanize dogs for space, but she struggles all the time to move dogs out. She gets a lot of help from Casa, which is great um, because they're nearby. Um, but she works there 24 seven. Like she said to me, the, the only days she had off, I mean, seven days, 24 seven, because if she doesn't come in on the weekends, then nobody takes care of the dogs. And that's sort of how it was run until she showed up and was like, wait a minute, we're, we're not going to leave them in, you know, in, in their feces and no food and water all weekend. I'm not going to do that. So she comes in there every single day. And she said the only time off she's had in the last three years was when she had COVID. And, and she's just this remarkable young woman. And with these little kids who's, who's saving all these dogs quietly on her own in this little pound. And there are stories like that all over the South. They're everywhere. We keep meeting them. Oh gosh. I mean, in Floyd County, Kentucky, everywhere, we just keep running into these places where there are people that are just sacrificing everything to keep these animals alive. And I feel like the municipal governments and, and the taxpayers, you know, whether they realize it or not, are taking advantage of them. I mean, they're, these people are doing the job that the county should be taking care of and, um, and paying for, and they're not doing right by them. And um, so we're just going to keep telling their stories, hoping that somebody hears. And, and Shelby's was great. We did get some really good response from that. It got our TikTok video got a bazillion hits and the local news people came and did a story on her. She's gotten some volunteers, another, another shelter that's in a small rural area. That's just doing awesome. Despite all the things against them, their volunteers have traveled over there. I think they're like an hour away to help her to, at the time she, she had these roofs that the County had given her to put on top of the kennels. So the dogs wouldn't be exposed to the rain and they went over and helped her put them up. So by telling her story, shining a light, what she's doing she got some attention and that's our goal. That's why we do it. It's why we travel. That's what we hope happens everywhere we go. And um, so it's why we'll keep doing it. So one other thing I want to make sure that we have a link to is uh, the Amber's halfway home film. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, yeah, that one. Um, well, actually, we've, we've pulled it off right now. It's not on our, we, we did have it on our YouTube channel and it will be back, but um, we are in the process of editing it and preparing it. It was just accepted into the Dog Film Festival. So it'll premiere in, the new version will premiere in Long Island uh, in the fall. And then it will travel to 22 theaters and cities across the US. And um, fingers crossed, hoping Netflix picks it up. They've done that in the past so that we can get this message out. And Amber's Halfway Home is the story of rescue in the dog pounds of Tennessee. When I was talking earlier about Huntington and that dog pound, um, that's the situation she's rescuing in. That's actually one of the pounds that she goes into and pulls dogs. And so we told the story of her rescuing these dogs and going into the pounds and, and the film crew actually takes you into the dog pounds and, and you meet the veterinarians and the animal control officer and you'll see the situation right up front and then follows them all the ways to going on transport. And, and where our point of telling this story is Amber's story is amazing, but it's multiply. It's happening all over the South all over the South. That's just one story. And um, so we, we chose to do that one because our film crew was in Nashville and it was convenient, but we could have gone and we could have gone to Mississippi or Georgia or Florida. We could have gone to a lot of places, North Carolina. There's a lot of places we could have gone and told that exact same story and people need to know. And when they do know, I believe they'll do better. I think they'll step up. So we just have to keep telling the story. And so how can we help? You can help by um, going to whowilllettthedogsout.org. And don't forget the will. Otherwise, you'll end up with some rap videos. But whowilllettthedogsout.org. <laughs> and um, checking this out, following the blog, following the stories. The the website's about to relaunch. Um, so it's, it's looking a little basic right now because we've been just sort of treading water. And we're about to relaunch it with its gorgeous new site. Um, and hopefully that will be up in the next week or two. Um, but if you go there, you can subscribe to the blog. And we put that out about weekly. Once a month, that blog actually transforms into a newsletter that has lots of ideas for shelters and for rescues and for people on how they can help, ways that they can get involved. You can volunteer with us. We have shelter liaisons who keep track of every shelter that we've been to. So we have somebody who's sort of following them. I always tell them you're just lurking on their social media. And mostly that's what the job is. And letting us know when there's a crisis, when there's a need, when they do something really cool. Um, we gather all those really cool things on the website in our resource guide and shelters and rescues can go there and find ideas for fundraising and grants and volunteers and fosters and um, enrichment ideas for dogs. There's a million, every good idea we're trying to put in one place that's free and easy to access for shelters and rescues and people who care. So I would say, you know, you can totally follow us and get the scoop there, but you also should help where you are. Find out what's going on in your local shelter and volunteer. Even if you do, I just read a book and, and interviewed a person who wrote a book called The Stress Factor in Dogs and talked about stress in shelter dogs. And they said the, the evidence has shown in research that even just sitting, just human being visible, just sitting outside that kennel, whether you're a kid reading a book or, or an adult just sitting there, that actually reduces stress in dogs. So even if you're afraid to walk them, go to the shelter, go be there. If you could take a dog out for a day or a night or foster, obviously those would be great ways to, to help. Um, but yeah, just, just get involved, speak up, adopt. When you know somebody looking for a dog, encourage them to adopt and not chop. So you know, there's lots of ways with lots of ways to help. It's just a matter of figuring out, you know, I write and Nancy takes pictures. So that's why we do what we do. Well, what are you good at? And how can you help find a way because it's a solvable problem, but it's going to take all of us. Kara, thank you so much for your time. I, I really feel like this is one of the most important conversations that I've had on the podcast. And, and I hope everybody takes this, this message to heart. 
Thanks for having me. Thanks for giving me a chance to share it. So as I mentioned, Kara and I had recorded our interview back in June, and I am excited to tell you that the Who Will Let the Dogs Out website has now officially been redesigned. It looks amazing. I'll make sure I have a link in the show notes for you because there are a ton of amazing resources for shelters, for rescues, for individuals. Make sure you check out Who Will Let the Dogs Out. You can follow along with their journeys on Facebook. In fact, just this first week of August here, they were on another shelter tour through the South, and I was following along with all their posts and videos and seeing what resources they were bringing to the shelters. I mean, I really just think this is such an amazingly brilliant way to bring resources and need and education and awareness to the people who need it the most because they have the least help, the least budget, because animal welfare services are not being properly prioritized in many areas throughout the country. Like I said to Kara, you know, it's a true fact, even though it feels gross to say, but your tax dollars can either go to saving dogs or to killing dogs. And quite frankly, the cost of the euthanization drugs sometimes cost more than the efforts that it would take to save the dogs. So if you're concerned about it from, you know, this, I only care about the the money point of view, then actually it makes more sense to save the dogs from a financial perspective. If your compassion and humanity and morality in and of themselves won't win out. You know, I've spent a lot of my time this year. A lot of you probably know that I am currently the president of the Be More Dog organization here in Baltimore. And as I had described in my conversation with Kara, a lot of the work that we do is centered around bringing resources to owned dogs, because we know that up to 40% of the dogs being surrendered to shelters are often because the family can't afford a medical issue. And so we try to bring resources and take care of those problems for owners living in under-resourced communities in Baltimore. And what I have been dealing with a lot this year is spay-neuter. You know, there is a huge need for spay-neuter. Sometimes there's this myth that persists that people in certain communities don't want their dogs spayed and neutered. And while that might be the case for some people, there's actually a ton of people who do want their dogs spayed and neutered and don't have the financial means or transportation or other resources to make it happen. And, you know, a lot of the programs that we partner with, we partner with these amazing programs and they are experiencing a vet shortage and they don't have enough vets to keep up with the demand. And so sometimes it's like two and three and four month wait. And a lot of times people's situations and circumstances may change, you know, their contact information may change. And so I think there was a recent study that said that over 2.7 million spay-neuter appointments were lost during COVID. So think about how many more dogs, I'm not saying all 2.7 million of them have reproduced, but we know statistics show that a large portion of them are. And so we're just seeing more and more and more dogs in the shelter. We have people that want to get their dogs spay-neutered. We're not able to get them there. It's just been a really huge problem. It's really this year, 2023, you know, been a real huge culmination of factors that we're still experiencing from COVID. 
my understanding, and I'll try to find the statistics that support this, but my understanding is that the year of 2022 was the first year in over 10 years that euthanization rates in shelters in the U.S. have actually increased. You know, for a long time, we've been on a great downward trajectory, but we're really experiencing a lot of fallout in this post-COVID world. So if you can foster, foster, if you want to know what fostering is like, pick up one of Kara's books. I'll make sure I have links in the show notes for you to purchase both of her books and also to watch the Amber's Halfway Home documentary, which again, just brought some tears to my eyes that there are amazing people in this world like Amber who spend their whole lives trying to save dogs. And while there is a problem, we also know that there are solutions. And that's one of the things I love about Who Will Let the Dogs Out. It's one of the things I loved about Kara's book, 100 Dogs and Counting. I love being able to look at what the solutions are and not just spiral out of control about the problems, which I'm prone to. I'm sure we can all be prone to at times, but if we can all get really solution focused and take action and take steps in that regard, then we can get there and we can really make a difference. I'm so grateful to Kara for writing these amazing books, for sharing her story and her time with us. And I'm grateful for you for listening, for taking this all in and for trying to think about how you can contribute to the solutions. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook or at Erin the Dog Mom on Instagram. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.